Well, hello, Mountain. Good to see everybody. You about sick of this cold yet? Yeah, I think a lot of us are getting there. I'm not. I like it. My dad in Minnesota, it's funny, I couldn't find the email here, uh, but he, uh, it was kind of funny. He's like, it's, it's very nice here. The weather's fine. I, I would like it to get above zero someday. But, so everything's relative, you know, it's cold and snowy here and so forth. You know, maybe you can relate a little bit to this little guy uh, on the screen. Everybody watch the screen. Here, just watch real quick. you go. Jesus, make it warm. Shall we pray? <laughs> maybe, that'll, maybe that'll help. So yeah, you feel that way sometimes, don't you? Just have enough of the snow and the cold and the shoveling and no more shoveling. Just imagine, can't you, we kind of picture these days of the summer, you know, and the grass is green, the sky is blue, and you know, the kids are running around in their swimsuits, and they just, you know, we kind of look forward to that. What we forget is when we get there, July 18th, it's like, oh, it's so hot. You know, it's 90 degrees and 90% humidity. Yes, God, I wish we could just get some cooler weather around here. You know, we're, we're kind of hard to please that way. <clears throat> Whether you kind of love the cold and are longing for the hot, or you love the hot and are longing for the cold, um, I'd, like us, I'd like us to think together in kind of a, maybe a, a, a pretty deep, reflective way for the next little while about something that I think all of us kind of share as a longing. And that is uh, home. Home. Uh, some of us feel this idea of home in different ways, you know. I think uh, maybe you feel it most keenly when you're far away from home, you know. Like if you're a college student and you're away at college or, or you know, if you're on military assignment, you maybe miss home or you're spending another night in a hotel, you know, on the road with part of your business. You kind of long for, you just want to be home, you know, want to get back home. Some of us left home a long time ago and can't quite seem to get back, even though in certain ways we're kind of trying. Maybe you don't have any memories of a happy home at all, but you kind of long to experience that someday. Or, or maybe your sense of home has been broken by death, or divorce, or desertion, or distance that's changed your sense of home. Or sometimes you feel home most keenly when you try to go home and realize that you can't quite. You, you get to that place only to discover that it's changed. You've changed. Everything's changed. It's just not home anymore. And you, you feel that sense of home. It's an interesting word, isn't it? Does it, does it kind of conjure up some emotions for you? The cluster of ideas and feelings we get when we talk about home. For many of us, it really is a happy and warm and welcoming kind of uh, sense when we talk about home. The scenes maybe flip through your mind. You know, you see your parents or grandparents, brothers and sisters. You see laughter and, you know, holidays and coming home from school and special hiding places and the box of toys in the garage. You can hear voices and families and see the back porch and birthday parties and Christmas vacations and all of that. That familiar light shining through the window of your house when you come up the drive that tells you you're finally home. For a lot of us, home triggers hidden pain. 
we remember maybe neglect or a sense of not being safe or separation or dissatisfaction or abuse or fearfulness, right? We get all these kind of different ideas. Home is a place you kind of want to run from, even if at the same time there's a party that wants to, to find it. Even, even if the idea for you of home is, is, is a heart of painful memories, that pain just confirms, doesn't it, the huge space that home hunger occupies in our deepest longings. I like what Lynn Anderson says. He says, no matter what our emotional history, we all want to feel at home somewhere, somehow. <clears throat> I think it's true. We have this universal longing. Friends, we're homesick. All of us. We're homesick for that place where we're finally at home, that place where we're comfortable in our own skin, where we know we fit in and belong, where we're unconditionally loved and accepted because we're, we're there and it's home. We belong. It's home. We all long for that. And we live most of our lives kind of as refugees who've been kind of kicked out of that somehow, we sense, but also at the same time, pilgrims who are on a journey toward it, but never quite fully arriving. That's our life here on earth, this universal longing imprinted on the human DNA for home. Home. What's the little nursery rhyme say? A little Bo Peep has what? Lost her sheep. She's lost her sheep and can't tell where to find them. But then what does it say? It says, leave them alone and they'll, they'll come home. Wagging their tails behind them. Don't worry, little Bo Peep. Those sheep are interesting. They've got like a little homing device in them and whatever they're doing right now, there's a magnet inside of them that they'll eventually say, I need to go home. And they will. Even if they're wandering far away, a little Bo Peep, they, they know that they're destined for home. And the scriptures remind us that all of us are like sheep who've gone astray. Each of us kind of to our own way and then we, we get sometimes to the place where we can't even hear the voice of the Good Shepherd calling us home. But it's there beneath the din of the other noises in our life and the other things that we busy ourselves with if we listen, there's the Good Shepherd calling us home. Do you ever feel that tug? Do you ever feel that inner pull to that place where you really belong? It's hard to know where to find it. You know, we, we, we sometimes think it's a, it's a home, it's a childhood home, or one we're going to make someday in the future, or it's a, it's a persona that will make us feel like we're finally home, or enough security, or financial success, or whatever it is. But it's elusive to get a hold of this powerful thing that draws us magnetically called home. January, I was home uh, in Minnesota. Uh, a lot of you know that's a stomping ground for me where some of my earliest memories were formed. And I was in Minneapolis and had an hour or so, and I thought, well, you know what? I, I don't know why exactly, but I felt this tug to go back and drive by and, and revisit my childhood home, the, the place where I lived my first seven years, 1823, Talmadge Avenue, southeast, not too far from the University of Minnesota, downtown Minneapolis. And, and I can close my eyes, I can see that place. You know, I can see the stucco. I can see the, the front porch where we stood for pictures. You know, me, about five years old with those baggy jeans. I can see the sidewalk out front where my sister on her pogo stick and me on my big wheel. I can see it all. It's just there plain as day. I can see that huge expansive yard we had in the side yard where we played big games of football and, and kickball. It's all there. 
I can see the cul-de-sac where my mom helped me learn how to ride a bike. I had to ride my, my cousin Mary's bike. It was a girl's blue Schwinn, which was very embarrassing with the low bar until I fell a couple times. I realized, well, that wasn't all bad. Uh, <laughs> I can see the train tracks behind our house, behind the garage, where we throw dirt clods and, and pull up onions and see if we can get the whole thing out of the, out of the ground. And, and, and uh, I, ca I can see the garage where I nearly burnt the place down, burning, uh, burning matches right by a gasoline can. I can see Maria's house right next door. Kind of had a crush on her. She not so much toward me. And then the, the Andersons and the Westwoods next door and the, and the next house down where our friends were. That awful dog Prince on his chain. I can see him out there. Ugly dog. And that awful Siamese cat that they had that nearly attacked me when I was young, which explains a few things. I see the snowman that Jimmy and I built right out front. And then in my mind, instantly it's spring. And, and, and we're filling our bellies on the Andersons' garden hose till our bellies are just sloshing with water. I can hear the voice of my mother calling me to dinner. I can hear my dad praying at the table. I see every room of that house. And the memories come flooding back in a special place, and I'm kind of drawn back there. Mark Twain said the reason a, a man wants to go to his boyhood home is he wants to go back to his boyhood. Maybe so. And for whatever reason, I found myself steering that direction through the familiar neighborhoods, and I was excited as I got close, and then I pulled up right in front of 1823 Talmadge Avenue, and instantly my heart kind of sank. Because they just, they just didn't look the same at all. Weeds were growing up. And it was kind of like an abandoned, run-down, lifeless, shriveled place, like a construction site that no one had paid attention to is what it reminded me of. I was, I was at the right address. <laughs> I wasn't home. The spacious football field had shrunk to about a fourth of its size somehow. I don't know how that happened. The whole house itself was smaller. Different cars out front, different paint on the house. For a second, I could hear my sister laughing. My mom whistling and smell the dinner on the table. But then I was in an instant, I was awakened from this dreamlike, <laughs> you know, visit to yesterday. And yesterday fell away. And my nostalgic, nostalgic trip down memory lane was, was gone. And I realized here I was parked out front of a very familiar house, but I was anything but home. I thought, I better get out of here. Some neighbor's going to see me parked here and crying and call the police or something. And if, if I didn't know it before then, and if you didn't know it before now, I kind of figured out that home is really not a place. It's not geography. It's not a, it's not a house. What, I'm, what I guess I was missing and wanting to sort of revisit was the people, right? I, I think. And I thought of that. You know, it's like when you sing, I'll be home for Christmas. You don't mean the house necessarily. If your parents move to L.A., you go there, and if everyone's there, it's still kind of home for Christmas, right? Home is where it's not really real estate, it's relationships. But then it dawned on me, and it probably has dawned on most of us, that if you hang around this old life long enough, well, people, they, they die on you. They leave you. You raise kids in a in a home and they grow up and move away. Your parents die, your siblings die, and families fall into their place in history. And this elusive sense of home is still out of our grasp one day. So sometimes we cling to someone, any one person we might be able to find, someone who, who we believe won't leave us, a spouse, a dog, a significant other, you name it. 
But even then we discover that home is not a person. Because even that, the most significant of relationships, the best of marriages, the closest of friendships, leaves us partly lonely. Listen to Henry Nouwen. He says, We desire to break out of our isolation and loneliness and enter into a relationship that offers us a sense of home. In this person, in this relationship, I will finally experience belonging, a feeling of safety, a sense of being well-connected. But when we are lonely and look for someone to take our loneliness away, we are quickly disillusioned. The other, this person, who for a while may have offered us an experience of wholeness and inner peace, soon proves to be incapable of giving us the real and lasting happiness we seek. And instead of taking away our expectation that another human being will fulfill our deepest desires, the pain just grows even greater because we're confronted with the limitation of what a human relationship can really provide for us. Home. It's not a place, is it? Not really. It's not really a people. It's not really a person. It's, it turns out that no earthly place and no human people or person can provide the, the intimacy and the connectedness and the belonging and the love and all those things that we associate so strongly with home and which drive us. No human person, no earthly place can provide it. Only God can provide it. Only God. It turns out this thing that every one of us feels that we're trying to recreate in home and, and find and grasp for can only be found in God. Augustine said it this way in the third century. He said, God, you've made us for yourself. You made us for yourself. And our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. Your soul is restless, as is mine. And a part of that restlessness we express in this idea of homesickness, this sense of quest. And we come full circle to realize a home, the thing we long for the most, that we believe might be found in a place or a, or a moment or a persona or a person or a group of people. It's not. It's a presence. It's God. What we're all looking for is God. To be home. To be loved and belong and to connect. Memories of childhood warmth or memories of terrible trauma from the past they're all just the same that they drive us to God. And, and in fact, we can't really ever fully get home in this life. And it's a reminder that our home hunger is for something beyond this life, a God who's bigger than this old world. And when you think about the story, it's what we've been doing. We've been talking about our story and God's story through time. And it's really the tale of of a God, it turns out, who longs for us. And people who long for Him, but who, like ships in the night, can't always seem to get their stories to, to connect. So where is your story these days? Is the homesickness that you feel 
allowing you to set your life priorities and your sense of ultimate to drive you to the one that will help you finally be at home? Or is your story unfolding in another way so there's another plot that's dominating what your life is about? You know, the story is just one person after another who seems like they're kind of pilgrims wandering about looking for home. You know what I mean? You got, you got Abraham. Abraham, you thought you were home. You're not. God says, go. Leave this country. Leave and go to a far place. I'll show you. He never really ever finds home. His descendants, are, his descendants wander over to Egypt and, and uh, they're stuck there. And then Moses, you know, he, he talk about a wanderer and a person who's homesick. He grows up in Egypt. That's not his home. He's a Hebrew. And then he has to go off to Midian for 40 years. All he gets there is a wife. That's not home yet. And then he leads the children of Israel 40 years through the wilderness. They're not home. They're homeless. And then he has the promise of the promised land just over there, just over there. It'll be awesome when I get there. No more shoveling. But he never gets there. And so he and all the rest and all of us can, can relate to Hebrews chapter 11 which says all of these, they died in faith, still believing, but, but not having received the promises and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on this earth. Just this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. I'm on my way home, but I'm not there yet. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. Home is not so much being present someplace as it is a presence, get this now, a presence that can go with you anywhere. If it's God, if home is ultimately about God, then it can be a presence that is with you, in you, and can go with you anywhere. You can have a terrible traumatic background in your family. You can have a wonderful background as a family, but what you're looking for is God. If you've got God, it goes with you anywhere. It's a presence. And it begins, I suggest to you today, that this idea of finding home and arriving there begins when you know, as Augustine said, that we're made for Him and that our souls are restless until they find their rest in Him. It starts with your purpose and why you're here. Once you figure that out, you feel like you're home. Little Sarah, she, she started her first day of kindergarten and the teacher said, now Sarah, I want you to come back to school tomorrow. I want you to bring a very important piece of paper. It's a special piece of paper called a, a birth certificate. And uh, little Sarah was eager to please, got home, told her mommy, hey mommy, I'm supposed to bring a special piece of paper to school with me tomorrow. And, then t and her mom said, well, what piece of paper is it? And she couldn't for the life of her remember what it was. She said, well, it's a, it's a special piece of paper. You know, it's a, it's a thing. Uh, mommy, it's, it's, it's my excuse for being born. Yes, Sarah. <laughs> we all want one of those, don't we? What is the purpose of being born? I mean, if a shovel is for shoveling and a harmonica is for playing, what's a person for? What are you here for? You want to have some fun sometime, ask, ask some college kids <laughs> why they're going to college. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to go learn how to do a job, get some job training. Uh, why, why do you want a job? Well, I've got to earn money. Why do you, you want to earn money? Well, I've got to eat. I've got to pay the rent, you know, have a place to stay. 
why, why, do you need, why do you need to rest? Why do, you, why, do you need, why do you need food? Well, God have energy to get up and go to work. <laughs> why, why do you need to go to work? Well, God to get some money. And on and on and on it goes. You, know, you, 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 you get up, you go to work, you earn money, right? You buy food, you pay rent, you eat, you sleep, rinse and repeat, day after day, month after month, year after year, until you have a whole lifetime. One day you kind of slow down a little, you stagger off the road and you die in a ditch like a dog. Harry Emerson Fosdick says that the reason we make so much noise and blow all those sounds and things on New Year's Eve is to drown out the grim sound of the grass growing on our own graves. Aside from being a real pick-me-up, I think he's on to something. <laughs> I think he's on to something. Because it's depressing. You know, Campolo says it this way. He says, it's like our impending death is out there and it's kind of like we don't want to pay attention to it because it'll, it'll force us to think about why we're here. So it's like a note that's stuck on, a, on an instrument in a whole orchestra and it's just like, bah, it's off chord and it's just blaring. But we don't hear it most of the time because the rest of the orchestra is playing and our life just moves on and, and the crescendo comes. But when the crescendo dies down and one by one the instruments of our life begin to fade out until there's just that one loud note that's stuck on, it fills up the whole sky and we can't get away from it. And that's how death is for us. Eventually it comes. You can ignore it for a while, but eventually you can't. Lynn Anderson says this, I've come to believe that it is not the thought of dying that terrifies us so much as it is the thought that we might never really have lived first. That we will come to the end of life having found it sort of pointless or being full of regret, never having had that sense of ultimate purpose never having really been alive for the reason you were put here. Perhaps all of our longings for home are, are really longings to fulfill the purpose that we're put here and the, and the meaning of life. I invited you to reflect with me a little bit today. So is it okay if we think for a second about what the meaning of life is and why you're here and what's behind this hunger for home? That by faith the story's revealing to us is really the God who made you and calls you to himself? What's your ultimate? What's your big thing? What do you put first? What's most important to you? When your priorities shake out, what would someone say if they looked at your life? What are you seeking? What are you most hungry for? If you, if you, if you were going to draw, draw the win for your life, what does it look like? What's the win? For some, you know, we're all over the map on this. You know, it's safety and security for some. They just want to get through life without too many bumps and scrapes, not too much pain. So you put a bike helmet on your kid, you wear your safety belt, go the speed limit, don't take too many risks, save 10%. Or for others, it's love, and we go clamoring for, for love and cling to this person or this pet or whatever we have. Happiness, success, the drug scene, whatever it might be. What's your ultimate, whatever your first big thing is in life? That's your ultimate whether it's a big splash or making a lot of cash or making a mad dash to the finish line, I don't know. But it's important that you figure it out because whatever your ultimate is, it will drive how you live your life and why you think you're here and it will determine whether you ever 
feel at home. So if you pick the wrong ultimate, you'll spend a whole lifetime trying to achieve it or find it or grasp it, and it'll be like driving back to 1823 Talmadge Avenue. You'll sit there and you'll look and you'll feel wistful and regret. And you can live your whole life that way if you want. The problem with a lot of us is that we've settled for the wrong ultimate. We've settled for the wrong ultimate. And what the story is inviting us to see is that the ultimate isn't out there and it's not a family that you're trying to create. It's not a family that used to be. It's not some version of success or some high or some warm feeling. It's someone. And his name is Jesus. He's the ultimate. And he's home. And every one of us has a decision to make about Jesus. My concern is that a lot of people think they know Jesus, so they reject some understanding they have of him. I think people sometimes who go to church don't really have a relationship with Jesus, the Jesus that his friends talk about, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and his friends today that have a real living relationship, not, a, not some distant religious figure, but the good shepherd who knows your name and calls you to himself. Until you have that as your ultimate, you won't be home. In my car, I have one of those GPS things, you know, a little fancy screen. One of the little buttons there says, go home. Go home. Push it. Doesn't matter where I am. I can be two minutes from home. I can be 2,000 miles from home. It'll say, turn left and let's get going. Let's get back home. And you know what? Every one of us has one of those inside of us. That homing device that, that little Bo Peeps sheep have, you have in us. We have, a, we have a go home button. And the story is helping to lead us home. It's, it's trying to help guide us so that your story will, in the future pages will lead you back to the place you were always meant to be. And that's with God. So where are you now in your relationship with God? Is He your ultimate are you walking with him in a way that it feels like you're home because you're communicating through prayer, you experience his presence, you have a deep sense of peace about your life? Or are you in a faraway country, struggling, knowing that you're not quite where you belong? Not out of a sense of guilt, but out of a sense of just longing. Well, chapter 19 in the story, as we have come there this week, is an interesting part of their life. That's exactly where they are, far away from home. Remember the, 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 the nation split north and south, and then the south was shipped off into exile over in Babylon, right? Remember that? And there they were over there, far from the presence of God. And for them, they longed for God so much, but for them, home was where the temple is. And the temple had been burned to the ground and destroyed. They'd been shipped away from Jerusalem. They had no idea how to experience God. So here they were in a faraway place, longing for God, wishing they could just go home. If we could just go home, if we could go back to Jerusalem, it would be awesome there. No more shoveling. It'll be great. We'll make God our ultimate. We'll put Him in first place, and it'll be awesome again. And that's where they are when we come to the book of Ezra in our Bibles. 
chapter 1, verse 1, something amazing happens. In the first year of this new king, his name is Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, get this, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. God can do some crazy things. Amazing turn of events. The king's name is Cyrus. Everybody say Cyrus. That's right, that's right. We'll call him Miley because he's crazy. Um, This guy is nuts. He's moved to let the Jews go back home. Look at verse 2. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. He's given the Israelites freedom. They brought them into captivity. They're working for them. It's like, you can go home now. And you can go build your temple. And now he's going to supply some resources for them to do it. Verse 3. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who's in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in, and in any locality where their survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver, gold, goods, livestock, free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Can you, believe, can you imagine how, much, how exciting that would have been? It's like, we're going home. No more exile. He says we can go. So they pack up and, and they're getting ready to go and they're going to go back and they know that they're going to have a temple again, which means they're going to have God in first place again. He's my ultimate. I want him. So, so they're all excited. That's where the, the temple is where the priests were. It's where the sacrifices were offered. It's where God's presence w- w- dwelt. So, and, and, the, and the temple was built right in the middle of, of the town. That's where it was. It would be right in the middle of Jerusalem, which is right in the middle of Israel, a symbol of how God always wants to be in the midst of his people and they're going to go and 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 uh, rebuild this thing so 538 bc about 50,000 of them began in a trickle all the way back to jerusalem longing for god freed by god uh this crazy miley cyrus king guy lets them go and there they go and when they get back home to jerusalem they roll up their sleeves and they get to work right away because they're going to put first things first god is their ultimate and they long to commune and be with him again in the temple. Verse Chapter 3, verse 2 and 3 of Ezra, they began to build the altar of God of Israel. Before they even had a temple, they said, first thing is just build the, build the, build the altar first. So then we can start worshiping. And, and, and they sacrifice burnt offerings in it in accordance with what's written in the law of God, in the law of Moses. Despite their fear of peoples around them, they persisted and they built that altar on its foundations and they sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and morning and evening sacrifices. First thing they did is they got back to town. They said, let's put God first. It's why we're here. Finally, their homesickness was fulfilled. They were home. They put God right in the center of their lives, and they started strong. But then life got in the way. There were some dissenters who didn't like what they were doing, some other people, kind of external forces that came into play that sort of got them distracted a little bit, dissenters. Some of them were people who were still in Jerusalem who never left. They never got exiled. They just stayed back, and they didn't understand all these new refugees coming in that were, thought they were in charge and building this temple. They didn't like it, so they were, kind of a, they were kind of dissenters. And then there was the problem to the north, the Samaritans. And this was the beginning of a very long term and bitter rivalry that began during this time period the samaritans offered to help build their temple we'll help you they extended their hand of friendship but it quickly curled to a fist because zerubbabel who's in charge of the temple said no thank you because they saw that the samaritans as kind of half-breeds and so not only did the samaritans go off and build their own temple at mount gerizim 
they did everything in their power to slow down and dissuade the progress on the temple. And so there were these external dissenters, people that got in the way, and then internally they had some of their own distractions with their priorities, not just people from outside, but priorities from inside. They kind of got distracted with life and their own projects, and they lost some of their motivation and their focus evaporated. They began to give less and less attention to the house of God and more and more attention to their own personal projects. And we can relate to that, can't we? Finally, we decide we're going to put God first again. We're going to put Him on top. We're going to get home with God, make Him our ultimate, but then life gets in the way. And sometimes it's from dissenters, other people who pull you off the path. Is that happening with you? Someone or some group of people that are pulling you off your path to God even though it's the path home? Or it's the internal distractions of our own mixed up priorities where we lose focus and life gets in the way. And usually these things happen slowly over time, don't they? They don't usually happen in a moment. They happen kind of like a slow fade of our zeal. Rick Warren said he woke up one day and he realized he was way overweight. He told his church, you know, as your pastor, I've only gained a couple of pounds a year, but I have been your pastor for 35 years. You wake up one day and you say, my goodness, how did I get here? And isn't that the, isn't that the case with us spiritually? Have you ever said that to yourself? Oh my goodness, how did I get here? When you finally have a moment of recognition about where you are. And the answer is usually just a little bit at a time. We usually don't have big blowouts spiritually where our tire just goes off and, and the wheel and the car comes to a stop. Usually on our way home, it's, it's a slow leak, isn't it? C.S. Lewis said it this way, if you put first things first, you get second things thrown in. But if you put second things first, well then you lose both first and second things. Are you putting first things first in your life? The people, they began well, but they lost their focus from dissenters and distraction. And pretty soon they just stopped working on this big thing for God. This big thing for God became a little thing to them. Whenever that happens in our life, we're in trouble. A week passed and nobody was doing anything on the project. Then a month, then a year, then two years, then five years. Weeds are growing up. It looked like an old abandoned construction site. They went home to this beautiful thing and, and then it, before long, looked like 1823 Talmadge Avenue. And there was an unfinished temple right in the middle of all their good intentions. Sixteen years it sat there on hold. Visitors passing by saying, well, their God must not be very important to them. Enough time for a whole generation of children to grow up and, and draw some conclusions about that abandoned project and think, well, our parents don't care very much for God. Some of you grew up in homes like that where the temple was unfinished for a long time and you learned some things about where the real priorities in life are. And now you have to decide. This is your story that's being written now. Are you going to be the same? Leave the temple unfinished? Sort of pretend it's a priority but never really get around to it? 
It reminds me of the scriptures from Revelation 2 where, where Jesus is saying to us and to the church at Ephesus, I hold something against you. You have forsaken your first love. You've forsaken the love you used to have. Remember, you used to have this ideal of, of pursuing me. That was the homesickness you were going to fulfill in me. But consider now how far you've fallen. Consider how far you've fallen. And then he says, repent. In other words, turn back to me. Come home. These are exactly the words that we need to hear today. They're the words, by the way, that Haggai brought to the people of Israel back in those days. He says, this is no time for you to be, you know, paneling your houses and paying attention to all your projects and running about doing all the things you do while the house of God remains a ruin. Verse 9, he says, you expected much, but see, it's turned out to be very little. Your good intentions going home didn't really amount. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? Well, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you are busy with your own house. We're all busy. What are you busy with? You busy with your house or God's house? What are you building? What's your ultimate? What's your first thing? Where's your priorities? Whose house are you building? In 2013, whose house did you work on? Yours or God's? What's it going to be in 2014? Well, the people heard the prophet. They got back to work. And long about 515 B.C., they finished that temple. And it lasted longer than the first one. And it was destroyed again in 70 A.D. But ultimately, that's okay because God doesn't dwell in a house made with hands anymore. He doesn't want a temple like that. He doesn't need a building like that because God sent His Son, Jesus, to tabernacle, as the Scripture says, to, to pitch His tent to dwell among us. That's why Jesus came, to be with us and to help us realize our purpose and that we're made for Him and that we'll be restless until we find our way home, not to a temple, but to Him. The temple is Jesus, and now Jesus says, we're the temple too. He says that when He comes and dwells in us, we become the dwelling place of God. We don't need a temple anymore. We are the temple. All God ever wanted was to be among His people, and so He did that through Jesus and His Spirit that dwells in us. If you've accepted Christ, you don't have to go to the temple. You are the temple. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Your body, you house God's Spirit. And then together, Jesus says, all of us who are trusting Christ together, on our way home toward Him, all of us then, He takes us like stones and He puts us together in a beautiful building with Himself as the chief cornerstone and builds us up into a beautiful home. The temple of God dwells in and among us. It's the church. It's what we're looking for. We're looking for each other in the church. We're looking for Jesus. And He's looking for us. And when you find that, it's a beautiful sense of home. So let your sense of homesickness drive you toward God. Let it lead you forward. And don't waste another moment of your life pursuing the wrong ultimate. You can waste 16 years or more building a home or a career or a family or friends or human family thinking that all those otherwise good things can produce the ultimate sense of home. But it won't. Only Jesus can provide that. So return to your first love. Whether you knew it or not, it's Jesus. It is 
It's Jesus, I'm telling you. And if you listen right now, you can hear him standing outside the front door calling your name into dinner. Let's pray. We thank you, God, for wanting us and for thinking of us and drawing us to yourself. We thank you for the holy longings and the aches we have inside of us. We thank you for the beautiful memories of earthly home, but also even for the painful ones because both of them drive us to you. Help us to recognize that you are the one who calls us and that we find our rest when we rest in you. So come to be near us now, we your people. Enter this temple, we pray. Amen.